Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands They will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly, angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. As we continue to reflect, we can do this centering prayer with our breath as we inhale, gracious God, exhale. Lead us by your spirit. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit. Amen. It is always a joy to be together, to gather and worship, whether you're with us here at the sanctuary or or visiting online. We are seeking Christ together in this season of Lent. And for those who maybe don't remember, or this is new ground, Lent is just a Latin word that means long or lengthening. And I know with all the clouds and the rain, we may not have noticed that the days are lengthening a little bit, but they are. The sun will come again, and as the days get longer, 
we, uh, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere uh, and in the church, in the tradition of Lent, seek to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Easter, which is many weeks away, but will be upon us sooner than we think. Lent is a time of preparation, and we've prayed that we would be led by the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit leads us to places that are challenging, leads us to places that are liminal spaces where we come to the end of ourselves, where we wonder where even sometimes our next uh, refreshment or nourishment, meal, and spiritual strength will come from. And today we're going to be looking at this very familiar story in Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus' temptation in the desert and how it fits into this season of Lent. What is it that we're longing to be rescued from? And what is it that we're longing to be rescued for? God meets us at this very juncture of our limits and our needs and his love. Biblically speaking, the main category for sin in all of Scripture is this concept, actually, of idolatry. For us, if you think of like a bicycle wheel that has spokes coming from the hub, we can think of sins as things we do that aren't right or aren't good. And what we do is we see at the end of this uh, bicycle wheel on the rim, we can see sins like, oh, I don't know, greed or lying or cheating or maybe some higher like uh, drama type things like murder or adultery. But kind of pick your poison, if you will, but there's all this list of sins that we think about. But the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, starting at the very beginning, talk about at the core, the real problem is this heart that seeks to make created things the main thing, that seeks to make what God has made that is good and us substituting God with these created things. And when that happens, then it plays out in all of these symptoms we call sin, and that Scripture talks about as sin. We need to be rescued from this disposition. We need to be delivered from this propensity that each of us have, this virus of the soul, if you will, that causes us to not live in alignment with God's plan and His ways and His paths. Man, it was scary when I reflected on this recently. It was over 30 years ago that I was in an undergrad class at Fresno State University, go Bulldogs, um, where I was taking a class in geography called the Geography of Biblical Lands, which you would think would be a pretty cool class to take. And it was, except the professor was, shall we say, not the greatest presenter. In fact, there were so many ahs and ums and pauses throughout the class that I actually started tallying how many times he would say ah or um. And I remember there was one class in particular that was over 150 times. It was a little laborious. But one of the cool things in the class is we would have different guest speakers who would come in and speak from their faith tradition. We had a, a Muslim imam come in. We had a, a Jewish rabbi come in. But I'll never forget, there was a Greek Orthodox priest that came in, and it was a fascinating 
fascinating message where he talked about, oh gosh, the history, the Jewish history and the history of the Greek Orthodox Church, but also the geography of the biblical lands. And what stuck, stuck out to me was the significance of the desert in our faith. And I remember the thesis in that class, although I don't, it's probably on some floppy disk somewhere. For those of you who don't understand the reference, please forgive me. But I, I don't know exactly what I wrote, but I do remember starting to dig in and looking at the desert and how significant it is. Even if you consider from the very beginning, the garden is juxtaposed with the desert. The garden is the place of life, nourishment, flourishing, creativity, beauty, a resourced and nourished state of being. And Adam and Eve, when they both said, you know what, we're going to do, do life our way and take things into our own hands, are banished from the garden and immediately in this desert experience. But if you consider the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, then Moses, Israel in Sinai, the prophets, in so many cases, they are taken and have to walk through a season in the desert, literally and figuratively. Then you consider early church history. In the first several centuries, we had the rise of the desert uh, mothers and fathers who removed themselves, themselves from civilization to be able to purge really themselves and to be able to purify themselves in the midst of all the compromises in the Roman Empire. And we know through history how God used them and continues to use them in their writings and their teachings. The desert is a severe place, but it's a place that the Spirit of God uses not just to test, but to prepare us for Him. So let's look at this passage today. It's a familiar one. Matthew chapter 4, you'll be happy to know, comes right after Matthew chapter 3, which sounds silly, but it's important that we remember that. Matthew has been a disciple of Jesus, and he is writing down what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has learned, so that particularly a Jewish audience, although there are Gentile listeners to his gospel as well, are going to understand who Jesus is. And Matthew starts with this genealogy of Jesus so that Jewish hearers would recognize that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Now, we say Jesus Christ, and that's right that we do, but Christ is not his last name, right? It's a title. It's probably more important or more appropriate to say Jesus the Christ, which means the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world who was promised by God from God in the beginning. Well, in Matthew chapter 3, we see that Jesus actually with someone, we know John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the Lord, what, in the desert, has Jesus at the Jordan River and is baptizing Jesus. And right before this passage today, it says the Spirit of God came down upon Jesus like a dove, and there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Jesus has not done any of his Galilean or Judean ministry yet. We don't know if there have been being healings yet, sermons yet. He hadn't started his earthly 
ministry officially yet, and yet there is this confirmation, this um, commissioning even of the Spirit on Jesus in this baptism event. Let that not be missed as we go into this, because the same Spirit that came upon Jesus with this blessing and confirmation is now the same one in verse 1. If you look at the passage today, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The very same Spirit that came upon Jesus to confirm his identity as the Son of God, the Beloved, is now sending him, it says, up into the wilderness. Part of the reason it says up is because he's been in the Jordan River Valley and literally has to go up a bit in elevation to get to these desert and liminal spaces where he is going to be tempted in the wilderness. And, he, and the Spirit is driving him there to be tested. That word for tested means literally tempted or to be tried like an experiment. I have the privilege in this season of life and ministry to be working closely with many PhD students, uh, particularly at UC San Diego. And oh my goodness, we can pray for these students. They're in the lab a lot. They're doing experiments a lot. Um, They're testing things. They're trying things to see what the truth is and what works and what doesn't. Jesus is being literally driven by the Spirit, if you will, to see how things are going to hold but also to be, to be prepared for a ministry that's going to be very intense. This Greek word here for wilderness literally means a solitary or desolate place. We know in terms of uh, judicial history and uh, prison systems that one of the most severe punishments is solitary confinement. When we are in a place of liminal aloneness, where we are in a place where we are completely without community and without others, it can be such a trying time and so, so very painful. This is what Jesus is driven to. A little shameless plug here as well as a resource for you in Lent. Uh, If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Uh, My spiritual director, who I've been meeting with now for several years, up in Orange County is an editor of an online spiritual formation journal called Cultivare, which sounds really fancy, but it's just Latin for cultivate. And at cultivare.net, there is an online free journal each month that comes out with a new topic or a new focus for the month related around our Christian formation. And this coming month in Lent, the uh, theme is wilderness. The theme is wilderness. It'll be coming out in a week or two. So if you visit cultivare.net, you can check that out. Um, But I offer that to you as yet another resource in your own walk with Jesus. So Jesus is sent by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We'll talk about that here shortly. It says he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And I love the next phrase. And afterwards, he was hungry. Yeah, indeed. In fact, my translation uh, says he was famished. He was completely hungry. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Jewish tradition and with Christianity, you know that the number 40 has great significance. Um, It can't all be listed here, but whether it's the 40 days of Noah's flood, 
the days that uh, Moses fasted while he was on the mountain in proximity to God. Moses and, he, and the Hebrew peoples, 40 years in the desert together, being purified before going to the promised land. 40 is a significant number in Christian history and faith. And it says that Jesus was hungry, right? He was starving. He was weak. He was physically vulnerable. And in his, in his humanity, in that, he was at the end of his resources. One quick word about Jesus in his humanity. The church wrestled early on with this tension, we would say, between Jesus being God and Jesus being man or human. And the church, as it wrestled with these uh, tensions, recognized that it was important to affirm both. And the thing that we want to emphasize today as we look at this familiar passage is Jesus experienced these temptations in the fullness of his humanity. He was literally hungry. He was literally famished. He was literally in need of water and food. So, verse 3, what happens? The tempter came and said to him. Another way to translate that is the one who tests or the tester. If you are the son of God, he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Take what is in the natural world, take what is in the creation, and use your agency to make of it what you want for your purposes on your terms. Take whatever needs, real or perceived, that you have, manipulate, even exploit, whatever it is that God's created and use it to your own devices. You're hungry, aren't you? Why don't you prove who you are? Why don't you prove who you are by taking these stones and meeting your needs right now in this moment? Isn't it amazing that the tempter in the very first statement goes right after the heart of what the Spirit has just affirmed in the baptism. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Just like a Jewish hearer would hear the echoes of the garden, right? Did God really say that you can't take of the tree? Did God really intend? Are you really the son of God? Then you need to prove it by meeting your own needs in your own way. See, evil, the tempter, is always tempting us away from God, his ways, and his provision. These stones here, of course, are here to meet your immediate needs, right? Do this on your terms. Jesus is in a very difficult spot here. Because he does, the tempter knows that Jesus somehow, in the miraculous reality of him being the Son of God, he does have power to take created things. We see it later in the scriptures where he multiplies the the loaves and the fishes, when he brings healing to human bodies and human spirits in all these different amazing ways. Jesus can make out of this created stuff the nourishing source of life that he needs in that moment, that bread. But how does Jesus respond? It says, Jesus answers in verse 4, it is written, 
One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan, the tempter, is testing Jesus and tempting Jesus to take the created things and to feed his physical body through his mouth. And yet Jesus is saying, my real sustenance comes from the mouth of God. His physical needs are real, but they are not unparalleled. He seeks to live by the very words of the Father. It's not about what he can put into his mouth by grasping or manipulating, but again, what comes out of the mouth of God, he opens himself to receive what the Father has for him in that moment. God is the transcendent source of all of life. It was in our bulletin today, the fountain of life itself. I'm not sure what we're hungering for today, where you find yourself in your life today, individually, as families, the places where we have needs, but if we can understand hunger as desire, it can be a literal, physical hunger from food, but it can be a desire and a longing for so, so many things, good things, but opening ourselves up to receive them in God's way, in God's timing, is what we see Jesus here doing as he relates the reality of the Word of God to his particular need in the moment. What is the first temptation listed here? It's to find fulfillment by grasping what we can on our own terms and our own way. And as you consider this, recognize that this is a temptation that's not just unique to us in the 21st century in Southern California and San Diego. This isn't something that's just unique even to Jesus in the moment of his testing, but this is a temptation that is universal in all time and in all places. In fact, I encourage each of us as we read Scripture throughout Lent and beyond, look for where this particular temptation shows up and how people respond to it in the different stories that come through the Gospels, the letters that Paul and John and Peter and others write in the New Testament. How has this temptation to find fulfillment in grasping what we can on our own terms, where does it play out in our lives today? Let's move to the second. In verse 5, the devil doesn't stop there. He takes Jesus from this desert landscape over to the temple. Now, if you can picture uh, Israel today, um, the, the Sea of Galilee is to the north and the Jordan River comes down. Dead Sea is down below. More or less where the Jordan River and the Dead Sea meet, if you look to the west up, you'll see the mountains. That's why the psalmist says, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? The reason you look to the hills is that's where Jerusalem is. It's up in the mountains down from the Jordan River Valley. And it's a precarious, really, road that goes up there. But in Jerusalem, of course, it's the central gathering place, not only for the Jews of that time, but throughout Jewish history, and it's where the temple is. And the temple is the central place. That's where everything happens. That's where God's presence is. That's where the Holy of Holies is. This is where sacrifices are made. This is where people come uh, year in and year out for all of the different uh, festivals and all of the different traditions. This is where the devil takes him. It says, 
The devil took him to that holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest place. Have you noticed in the the landscape of the U.S. that a lot of original churches had these steeples, right? Why? Because you could see where the church was anywhere from where you were in the village or the rural areas. Now we live in a technical world where we have digital steeples. They're called web pages or websites, right? But back in the day, the tallest pinnacle, this is where everybody can see. The evil one has taken Jesus now to not only the central place, but also to the highest central place so that everybody can see. And then he's even more cunning than that. What does it say here in verse 6? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Okay, so there's so much going on here. First of all, the devil The language there literally means false accusation or slanderer. That's what what this evil thing called the devil does. Falsely accuses and slanders. We've already talked about the holy city, how Jerusalem is at the center of God's presence and promises. And all of Jewish life is centered around it. This is where all the important and powerful people are. Here in Jerusalem. Here at the temple. And now it's the highest place where everyone can see. And then the accuser uses Scripture so deceptively, so cunningly, and correctly quotes the psalm. It's a correct quote, like verbatim, like he's memorized it and says it just the right way. But he does it always in the wrong context. I know there's kind of this phrase in in real estate Location, location, location. That's true. In interpretation, it's context, context, context. And what the evil one is doing here, he's taking Scripture out of context, placing it in this place to tempt Jesus, to to let himself um, be rescued by God in this way. Jesus comes right back in verse 7 and says, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus rightly sees that what the evil one is doing is actually testing God in the midst of this. He's testing that, will God really be good at his word? Will God really come through? Right? But he says, no, 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 no. It is God who is Lord, not the the devil. What is the second temptation? If the first temptation is to get our needs met in our way on our schedule and to manipulate what is out there and what God has created, whether within us or outside of us, for our own devices. The second temptation is to have honor at any cost. Prestige, reputation. We even have it in our language, don't we? Oh, that person is making a name for themselves. You see, if Jesus is at the top and sees that God is the one that rescues Maybe this he really is the son of God. Because remember, the devil said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Again, he's going right after the heart of what the spirit has said in Matthew chapter 3. Is there anything wrong with having a good reputation? No. Is there anything wrong being honored in our communities and in our spheres of influence? No. But it's a bait and switch. 
when we make that reputation the main thing, the honor of others, being please, pleasing in the minds of others, and we make that the main thing, we make that what we're living for, we make that what we're striving for, it starts to get power over us, and then sin begins its rampant spread. Jesus rightly sees what the evil one is doing and says, no, I shall not put the Lord my God to the test. If I have recognition, if I have a good reputation or a poor reputation, that's not what I'm living for. I'm living in relationship with the Father. The devil is not done. There's one more. Strike two for the evil one, but he's going one more. And this one, he's going right for the jugular. You'll notice in verse 8, it doesn't say if you're the son of God this time. He's just going right for the heart of the matter. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Another mountain... I've noticed that um, some of the, speaking of location, 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 sometimes it is mountain areas or higher areas where homes have higher values because they have such beautiful views. I actually was on a mission type of trip in uh, Haiti years ago, and we were in the slums of Port-au-Prince, which is the most desperate place I have ever been in my life in so many categories. But the person that was going to be getting us to the airport the next day took us up the mountain outside of the city. And we went from squalor and abject poverty and desperation to this multi-star level restaurant and hotel where they were going to give us dinner before we were going to be traveling the next day. And it was such a contrast. It was just shocking and very, very difficult even when the waiter came to ask for our order, I was weeping because it was just too much change in too short of a time. But my point is, the wealth and the resources were all in the mountain. And so Jesus has been taken to a place like this and shown all of the splendor, all of the kingdoms, both literate, literally and figuratively. And the evil one is tempting him here. It says... Again, he's gone to a high mountain. He says, all of this I'm going to give you if you will do two things, if you will fall down and worship me. All of the kingdoms and realms and their glory, all of God's, the God-given excellence of creation, I am going to give you these things. What do you mean I'm going to give you these things? If you look at one of the synoptic gospels and look at this story, it's even a little more uh, explicit. They, it says, essentially, they are the devils to give. In the mix of what was going on spiritually, Jesus was on mission to reclaim back which the devil had stolen. But in a literal sense, these are the evil ones to give. And if you fall down and worship me, you will have them. If you fall down, in other words, submit to me, if you pledge allegiance to me, if you bow to me, and then if you worship me, worship's an interesting word. Actually, it's kind of been, it's not co-opted, but sometimes when people think of worship, they think, oh, we're going to do worship now, which means we're going to sing some songs together, hymns or praise songs, and that's true. That's a part of a worship service. 
But worship literally means to kiss towards. It has to do with reverence. It means to regard with deep respect and veneration. It means to say, this is what's most important, and this is what I'm going to sacrifice and live for. The evil one here is going right for the heart. Worship God and suffer. Worship me and have everything that the world has to offer. Jesus fights back with the same directness. In verse 10, it says, away with you, Satan. Again, the Satan in Scripture means the accuser. The accuser. Do you know that accusing voice? Are you able to hear sometimes that accusing voice? Sometimes it's not so subtle. Jesus is is responding to the accusation. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He flips it, right? You know, bow down, worship me. And Jesus says, I worship the Father and serve him only. Only Everything I am, everything I do, everything I think, everything I say, the things I choose not to do and when not to do them and to do them and when to do them is going to be in alignment with what the Father has for me. Jesus is refuting what Satan is doing here. What is this third temptation? To do anything and everything we can can, to gain as much power and possessions as possible. Do we live in a world that has a problem with materialism and consumerism? power grabbing? I don't know. We need to pray about it, but I think so. I think so. There used to be a little bumper sticker when I grew up back in the 1900s. So the man with the most toys wins. I don't think that's really as true as much anymore. I think it's the person with the most options wins. But whatever it is that we sell ourselves to, this is the third temptation, to do everything and anything we can to grasp as much as we possibly can in terms of power and possessions wasn't meaning to say this, but I have been a little astounded living in the Central Valley as my wife and I did for quite some time. There was a very wealthy person in the valley who was a Christian whose lawyer eventually told him, you can no longer drive the youth group down to Mexico for mission trips because you make too much money. Where did he make his fortune? In self-storage units. We have so many possessions that we don't have enough space for them We pay somebody inordinate amounts of money to keep it in some place and then forget that we even own it. The people who are at the top of that food chain make a lot of money, let me just say. Temptation number three, do everything that you can to gain as much power and possessions as possible. So these temptations are real, right? To to take creation to meet our immediate need, to have and make a good name for ourselves, and to gain as much power and possessions as possible. There's nothing wrong when God gives us power. It's there to serve him and to serve others. There's uh, absolutely nothing wrong with having good reputations, but when we serve the people that we're trying to please, it starts to get power over us. And there's nothing wrong with having needs met, as long as it's done in the way that God wants to provide. And then this glorious verse in verse 11 Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited upon him. The devil flees, strike three. He tried his best in this moment, looking for another opportune time for sure. But let us not forget, this wasn't just a test to say, okay, he has fidelity. Jesus now has fidelity to his true identity, although that's true. 
but it was a preparation. It was a preparation for the temptations he was going to continue to encounter throughout his life and ministry. Look for that as you continue to read the scriptures in this Lenten season. Which of these three temptations are at play for Jesus to get really excited because somebody thinks well of him? Or for Jesus to be despairing because he's being rejected? Right? Each and every moment, as he disciples the twelve and as he goes in his ministry, how are these three at play? And then to bring this home, how are these three at play in our own lives? And how is Lent an opportunity to prepare for Easter? One of the quotes in your bulletin, and they, there's a spot on page six. I wanted to, to just read these because you may not have seen them. One of them is this. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Friends, that is true. That is true. Lent is a season not only to confront the places where we wrestle with sin and to have these um, desert experiences to be purified and, and really purged of those. It is also a season to prepare ourselves for the reality of Easter, which is God is who he says he is. He really is true and good, and Jesus really is his son. This is why N.T. Wright, just above that in this quote, says, Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty, not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out ready for all of the good things he now has in store. And so in your bulletin as well, you will see uh, that there is on pages two and three a little bit of a description for fasting here at Renew Church. So on page two, I'm going to take a little bit of time to look at this um, just because I want you to be aware of it and then so you can prayerfully consider as we start the first full week of Lent this week. It says that fasting is removing aspects of our daily lives to create space for God, to move in new and fresh ways. As with other spiritual disciplines, fasting is a way of doing the small things we can do to make room for God to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And you'll see there's two more paragraphs of description. And then on page three, there's a suggested schedule for fasting. Um, weeks one and two, weeks three and four, weeks five and six. You can see there in the different list. Just take this season of Lent and prayerfully consider how you might partner with the Spirit to create space within yourself for Him to reveal the places and the things that He would like to remove so that you can be more cleaned out, more ready, more open to receive the joy during Holy Week and the Easter season that is coming as we pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for Matthew who's recorded it. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you so much for your spirit that empowers us to walk with you, to rely on you. Even as we're led into desert situations, as we recognize, Lord, how these temptations to make things work for ourselves, to make names for ourselves, to gain more power, more privilege, more possessions. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. 
and use this season of Lent individually and corporately that we might be prepared to worship you in spirit and truth this Easter. Amen. Amen.